0: All right, so uh, you may know that we have worked through uh, the book of Hebrews uh, for quite a while here, and um, we finished chapter 10, and chapter 11 kind of starts the Hall of Fame of Faith and the home stretch to the end, and I didn't want to break it up over Christmas, so we're going to pick that up after January 1st, uh, and for now, for the next three weeks, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, you know, I'll tell you on the front end, one of the interesting things about this is in chapter 2, you've got the visit of the wise men, and that really has happened a couple years after Jesus was born. Uh, so all these nativity scenes with the camels, uh, the, the camel, they weren't there. The kings and the camels weren't there at the, at the manger. But they are all events uh, focused on the birth of Jesus. I mean, when Herod, he says, oh, yeah, who, who's been born? Who's been born? Uh, he's worried about those who have been born uh, for the last two years. And so Herod gets, uh, does some terrible things. But uh, they're all centered around Jesus' advent, and in chapter three, boom, John the Baptist earthly ministry starts. So we're going we're gonna to spend time in the, the things surrounding Jesus' entrance into this uh, world over the next three Sundays. So here we are, Matthew chapter one, verse one. This is God's word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. We know who that is. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Wow. Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Home stretch, you guys. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abayud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azer. And Azar, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matin, and Matin, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And let's pray. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, several years ago, I, was, uh, I had my, my off day, Friday. So it was, uh, it was my off day, and uh, I was in a good mood because I knew what I was gonna be doing. Uh, one of the things I was gonna do on my off day was go to the Williams-Sonoma outlet. And uh, so it was a sunny day, Cold outside, cold, 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 but it was sunny and beautiful, and uh, I'm driving down Poplar, and uh, I've got the music cranked up, which is actually odd for me. Uh, Tammy will tell you, unless we're on a big, long road trip, I usually drive around, I would say, 95% of the time in silence. I just drive in silence. But I had the music cranked up, probably Steely Dan or something like that, and I mean, I was, I'm a fool to do your dirty work, you know, just singing my guts out, driving down Poplar, just a good day, singing my guts out, and as you know, I make... Strange expressions uh, when I sing uh, sometimes, you know, wincing. And so I'm driving on Poplar, I'm at Colonial, I'm at the light, and I'm just, the, the music's booming, I'm singing like crazy. I make a left turn and I go in and go on with my day. On Sunday, a lady stops me in the hall and she is upset. I saw you. I know what you did. I said, Oh, well, there's so many things to choose from. You know, I'm like, I. I, I I just wanted to start confessing all these secrets, you know. And, uh, and she said, that was the worst case of road rage I've ever seen. <laughs> and uh, I said, was it a poplar or a colonial? <laughs> yes. I said, I was happy. <laughs> and uh, I was going to Williams-Sonoma outlet. Uh, anyway, my point is, she saw this thing and she, she sized it up. She deduced it. She saw these expressions and this pounding on the wheel. And I mean, this madman. And uh, she, she had information. She, she made a determination. I, I don't blame her. The problem was um, she didn't properly interpret the information or she couldn't really see the information uh, correctly. And uh, I start that way because, ladies and gentlemen, the world has done and does do the same thing with Jesus Christ. They go, well, yes, I've heard of this Jesus, and uh, oh, I agree with some of the things Jesus says, but I just don't agree with some of the other things Jesus says. By the way, a great comeback for that is, what, what, of the, what don't you agree with of that he said? That will stump them every time because they don't know what he said. They have an idea of what Jesus is, an idea of what Jesus should be, and even Christians, ladies and gentlemen, we have this idea of what the Savior's like, and we have this sense of what he's like. This is where we find out what he's like. God has revealed the living word to us in his word, it's the Holy Spirit of God, the person of the Holy Spirit who unlocks all this truth to begin with. And so when it comes to understanding the gospel and the eternal situation of your soul, you better have the right perception of Jesus. You better have the biblical perception of who Jesus is. If you reject him, that's your business. Uh, I, I can't sell you uh, on, on believing in a, a God that you can't see. I can't, I can't close that deal for you. But if you're a Christian or a not Christian, or not a Christian, the Bible always challenges the hearer to receive God, to receive Jesus, to receive the gospel of grace as it is presented in God's Word. This is the standard. This is where we find out the truth. And so I, I begin that way because Matthew is very careful to proceed that way. He takes great care, great intention in presenting the way we are to receive this Jesus. And now Matthew, the, the author here, you know he was a he was a tax collector, right? Matthew Lee also his other name was Levi. He was a tax collector, and it's interesting because he's not. Uh, I'm going to stray from my notes a little bit here, but he he's not um, one of the more prominent apostles. He's not like Peter and, and John. Um, he he's he's there, but he's a, he's this ta- former tax collector. Probably that means he was like a record-keeping guy. I mean, if you're a a, a numbers guy, you're a record-keeper guy. He was probably a record-keeper guy, and he starts with record-keeping. He starts his gospel in a record-keeping way and in a very Jewish way. He's a Jewish man writing to a Jewish audience about a Jewish Savior sent by the God of the Jews. Very Jewish. In fact, it's the most Jewish uh, of the Gospels, lots of references to the Old Testament and so on. And so he's got a deliberate way of starting that would immediately connect with the first readers. And this is the point I think he's trying to get across, that Christ had the perfect, promised pedigree. And uh, I'll say that, that that those words are not chosen lightly. The perfect, promised pedigree. Uh, Jesus was suited um, he was suited to be king. He was suited to be savior. Um, he had a perfect pedig- pedigree and it was promised that God would send him. So, um, you know, as, as Old Testament readers would look forward to the New Testament, they, they, they saw things through a veil, right? So God would make a promise, and they couldn't see it quite clearly. Now, on this side of the New Testament, looking back, we go, wow, that makes sense. Uh, that points to Jesus. We see the New Testament, and the whole thing, just the Old Testament just blows open. I mean, I'm, I'm an excited Old Testament reader all the time. I love it. Um, but um, looking forward, there's kind of this veil. So they don't, they don't understand everything, these, these uh coming at it from the Old Testament, okay? And so uh, Matthew's kind of addressing that. What they did know from the Old Testament is that sin is an eternally big deal to a God who's perfect. They did know that. That was very, very clear from the Old Testament looking forward. They also knew that blood was the payment for the lack of perfect obedience, okay? God is owed perfect obedience. If you haven't given it to him, then you are a debtor. And the price, the wages of sin is death. They knew that. Um, They knew looking forward from the Old Testament, from the curse forward, that God had this plan in place. It wasn't quite clear exactly what the plan was going to be, but God made a promise, and it was this redemptive promise. There was this figure he was going to send. There was this nation he was going to build. From it, there was this kingly line that was going to happen. It was, it was obscured. They didn't quite understand it, but they looked forward, and there was this promise that their heart could grab onto, that God was not going to leave them alone in their sin. They also knew that the the plan centered around this one central figure. It wasn't some kind of method or system or a team of people. This one figure was going to come and be the savior. And redemption, they also knew, comes from believing the promise. Just like Abraham. He uh, believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's justification by faith alone. They did understand that principle. Looking forward to what we know is the cross, what they knew was that God was going to provide a deliverer. Okay? And so Matthew's writing with that kind of an idea that, G- that Christ had the perfect promised pedigree. In short, he's the one we've been waiting for. That's what Matthew's trying to communicate. All right, let's go to the first sermon point, which is this, God's grace to the unexpected. Now, please make a mental note of that sermon point, God's grace to the unexpected, because I'm gonna have to kind of wriggle around a minute and come back. But that is the thing that's hanging there, God's grace to the unexpected. Um, but I got to tell you, there's a classic difficulty. When I say classic difficulty, I mean when you puzzle over something and go, I don't understand why there's a genealogy in Luke, and it seems to be a little different than the genealogy in Matthew, and I find that to be confusing. Well, um, you're not the first one, believe me. I mean, it's been puzzled over for 2,000 years, okay? Okay. Um, And so it's a classic difficulty of the comparisons of the genealogies between Matthew and the one in Luke 3. And there are a few ways to take it, all right? And I'm just going to summarize it just to to, to get it over with and not bog your brain down. Um, Some people go, you know, well, of course, Matthew is very Jewish-minded, and Luke is very Gentile-oriented. Luke is probably a Gentile himself. He's writing to a Greek dude named uh, Theophilus, and uh, he's giving an orally account. One's a Gentile-directed, Gentile one's Jewish-directed. That in itself brings some variance to the perspective. That's a catalyst for difference, differences. But the question about the two genealogies, some commentators will say, some scholars will go, well, um, is uh, Matthew, Matthew offering a legal line and um, Luke is offering a paternal line. In other words, um, Matthew is focusing on heirs, the ones who are actually ruling, and uh, Luke is more like, who begot, who begot, who begot, who begot who? All right, so some commentators go, well, there's some differences, and, uh, and so on. And by the way, you know, one traces back, uh, Matthew's traces back to Abraham, and Luke's traces back to Adam. Okay, so that's different too. Um, other scholars will say, well, one is Joseph's line, and one is Mary's line. Others will say, "Well, one is a royal line, that is, who sat on the throne, and the other one is a legal line. Um, they are in the lineup, but they never actually had uh, rulership and so on. Well, um, to save us all some time, I'm going to a really smart guy. Anybody heard of a Donald Gray Barnhouse? You have. I was going to say, I bet, I bet the Owens have. I bet Bob, I was, as I was reading it, I was, I, bet, I was like, I bet Bob Owens heard of Barnhouse. But anyway, listen to this quote. Um, this is from Donald Gray Barnhouse, and he says this. When God the Holy Spirit begat the Lord Jesus in the womb of the Virgin, without any use of a human father, the child that was born was the seed of David according to the flesh. Now listen, when Joseph married Mary, And took the unborn child under his protecting care, giving him the title that had come down to him through his ancestor Solomon. The Lord Jesus became the legal Messiah, the royal Messiah, the uncursed Messiah, the true Messiah, the only possible Messiah. The lines are exhausted. So whether you look at Luke's or whether you look at Matthew's, the lines are exhausted. Jesus is the only possibility. And it says... And the benefit then is any man that ever comes into this world professing to fulfill the conditions will be a liar and a child of the devil. So if you hear somebody going on Beale Street going, Oh, forget the other Jesus, I'm the one. Or to the Jewish world, somebody pops up and goes, Oh, look, I'm the Messiah. And the Jewish world goes, Oh, good, you're finally here. No, he's not. The lines are exhausted. Jesus is the Christ. No matter how you look at it, um, it's traced back to uh, the, 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 the right of Jesus to be eligible um, to be the Savior. All right? So some, some technical theological difficulty there. But of, the, of all that genealogy and stuff, um, what you need to remember is that, um, um, yeah, here's another good quote. Puzzlement in the face of these differences, must not obscure the fact that the main purpose of each genealogy is to affirm uh, the Messiah's Davidic ancestry. That's the point of all of it, okay? The point of all of it is that Christ had the perfect promised pedigree, and now to this idea of of grace here. Um, You know, if you were going to make up a religion, ladies and gentlemen, um, you wouldn't do it this way. Uh, You'd make up some sanitized little story, and uh, you wouldn't have a genealogy like this one in Matthew. Um, You you wouldn't. uh, You would. You. Boy, it'd be hard to get a bunch of suckers uh, to buy into this uh, because you wouldn't concoct a family tree like that. Um, If, but if you were trying to convey the astonishing gospel of grace, then boy, this genealogy looks pretty good. It's pretty inviting. If you wanted to have an astonishing gospel of grace, the point was that Jesus had come to save sinners. And I'll tell you, you know, even Mary, when she says this, when she has her, um, um yeah, yeah, oh yeah, um, my soul magnifies the Lord. She says in in Luke, my spirit rejoices in God, my what, Savior. So, Mary's not going, oh, uh, I'm highly favored. We're well, wonderful. Oh, my blood is pure. Oh, my birth is weird. Oh, I, uh, oh, uh, she's saying, I need a Savior. Yeah, I'm highly favored. God's br- using me to bring the Savior of the world into the world, and He's going to be my Savior. The Son's going to be my Savior. Mary says it quite freely. Um, so, um, yeah, she's a favored one. The Lord is with her, but uh, uh, it's because a Savior is being sent. And so, all that to say, Jesus came. From a kingly and noble and regal line, and um, it's interesting as you look at this genealogy. I've already read a bunch of herky jerky names, and, and uh, we're just going to point out a few things in this genealogy that I think um, you'll uh, you'll find encouraging. Um, about half of the uh, kings in this list did good in the eyes of the Lord; they were good kings. But even the good kings uh, had problems. I mean, uh, Hezekiah made some mistakes. And uh, uh, David, gosh, you know, he was a murderer, adulterer. And, he, and yet he's this, this central redemptive figure along with Abraham, David, Jesus. I mean, that, that's what's trying to be put forth to us. I mean, it, it's, it's, some, it's something. Jehoshaphat's in this list too. He is compromised later. And so about half the kings were good. But, man, they weren't perfect kings. And that about half the kings were wicked who were listed, uh, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, like Manasseh in verse 10. Manasseh, the father of Amos, um, in Second Kings 21, it tells us that he did more evil than anyone and dragged Israel astray with him for his idolatry. And it says more, than, more evil than the nations around them. So bad was Manasseh. And yet he's in this family line. And what about, ladies and gentlemen, the four women listed? There are women listed in this family line. And, you know, we look at it and we go, oh, only four? What was wrong with them? I mean, were they not enlightened? You don't understand the culture, man, that Christ is the great emancipator of women, that in creation, God builds the importance of women in. He goes out of his way to go, men are bigger Men are louder. Men are stronger. Women, Ladies, I know you're strong. You're strong. You're super strong. By the way, <laughs> I almost started laughing in, in the service, thinking about the way millennials talk uh, when I was singing, ox and ash are feeding. You know, they don't say ox and ass. It's ox and ash. Anyway, all that to say, enough of making fun of the generation. But um, what about these women? Um, it was scandalous to have them listed in such a thing. I mean, they they were, they were not, they were not um, voters. They, were, they didn't have leadership. Their testimony was no good in court in that culture. I mean, it was a very different culture, very different culture. And uh, that four women are listed, and that a resurrected Jesus would, would reveal himself to women, it was just an amazing continuation of the value that God puts on women at creation. Anyway, women show up in this list, and it's... it's it's, it's pretty much interesting. It would, it would have been scandalous, but, but when people read these names, they would have been like, whoa, 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 whoa wait, wait, wait. This is how we're gonna announce the uh, uh, perfectly promised pedig- pedigree guy with these ladies? I mean, in verse three, you've got Tamar. Genesis 37 indicates that she played the role of a prostitute. She's in the family tree. Um, what about Rahab in verse five? Rahab, you remember her from Joshua two and what six, I think? Joshua 2. She helped the Israelite spies. And what was her occupation? Uh, Oh, harlot, right. Another one. Um, How about Ruth? She's in the list. And we go, oh, Ruth, but you know what? She was a Moabitess. She was a foreigner to Israel. Um, So she she wasn't a a naturally born Jew. That's pretty amazing. Um, And how about verse 6? Don't you love the way they put it? David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And we go, oh, wife of Uriah, remember that whole story. I mean, if, if you just put Bathsheba, you go, oh, Bathsheba. But you put the wife of Uriah, guess what? That shows, I mean, they could have said Bathsheba, but when you say the wife of Uriah, you go, oh, the murdered guy. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not the best way, the prettiest way to put it in the brochure. You could say, oh, Bathsheba, beautiful name. Oh, Bath, lovely Bathsheba. Oh, he was, he was compelled by her beauty. No, you see Uriah and you go, that's right, David the murderer is a central redemptive figure in the scriptures. Is it not amazing? So if you wanted to communicate a God who's all about cleaning up the horrible mess that sin brings, this is a great-looking great genealogy. Um, what we're about to see is this Savior, that he's in the saving business and that all sinners need saving. All right, so to apply this to your life, I got another quote from another good guy. Uh, Dan Doriani, and uh, I could have just stolen all this, but I just like the way he phrased all of it. Um, and um, I mean, these are not hard, this is on the, this is on the second page of his book, okay? Uh, not that hard of of, of of observations, but you know, in, in Matthew 8 and Mark 4, 41, um, uh, the storm threatens the disciples and Jesus stands up, rebukes the waves. He says, peace be still, and you know what they say? The, you know, the, the waves calm down and they go, you, you just did that. You know what they say? They ask a question. Who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? And other translations, Ron, yours would say, uh, what manner of man is this? What manner of man? What manner of creature is this that the wind and waves obey him? Who is this? Another one. Um, in Luke 7, Jesus forgives sins and bystanders go, forgive sins? Who is this? Because who can forgive sins but God? Who is this? And then he goes on to cite uh, the uh, the crowd. They lay their cloaks out and palm branches and and they shout out, Hosanna, son of David. And the city asks, who is this? And at the trial, uh, Pilate goes, hey, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus also asked on the trial, are you the Christ? Who are you? That that's the whole point, ladies and gentlemen. That that's that's what this gospel is trying to to tell us. Um, that's what this genealogy is trying to set up. Who is this Jesus? He's the perfectly. He's the perfect promise pedigree. That's who he is. He's the one guy who history lined up and aims at and trains upon, points to. Everything is fulfilled in this Christ, and we're not supposed to miss that. And you know, Christians and non Christians alike all ask the same kind of question about Jesus. Who is this? Now, an atheist would go, I don't even believe in that stupid religion. Um, You're all a bunch of fools and you believe in some kind of old-timey kind of thing from mystery days in the 1600s or somewhere. You're all stupid and you can't reason uh, and all that. So an atheist would go, I don't even believe, I don't have a religion. What are you even talking about? But at some point, multiple points, people go, why am I here? Um, you know, as you age, you feel it more acute, you're, you, acutely. You, you go, wow, that was fa- fast. I mean, I didn't get, I didn't realize I was going to get to this point so quickly, and then it's about to wind down. Uh, it's a little frightening uh, how fast it all unfolds. And then you start to pay more attention to history. And you look at human history, and you're like, dang. Uh, or you watch an old movie. You know, we'll watch, I, I'm, a, I'm addicted to this. We'll watch some old movie. It's a wonderful life or something, and, I mean, during the movie, I'm on the computer seeing if anybody's still alive. (laughs) Do you do that too? I mean, I watch an old movie and I'm like, is anybody still alive from this movie? Because you see them so full of life and verve and talent and trumpet players that are blowing it like crazy. And dancers and actors and all these comely characters. We have comely characters in Hollywood right now. They had comely characters back then. They just, they vanish. And your life is so short, so we all ask questions like, why am I here? Is there something beyond me? Why does life have meaning? Why is there a sense of good and evil? And so everyone asks that question. And so Jesus presents himself, and the atheist goes, I don't believe that. Okay, well, now you just made a determination about Jesus. You did something with him. You answered in your heart the question, who is he? You say, I don't think he is who he says he is. Mm, That's your prerogative. But what I'm saying to you is the Bible challenges us to say who is this Jesus and if you embrace him the bible's answer the gospel's answer is that God took a surprising pity upon a messy humanity and a bunch of sinners messy lives and he sent a savior to rescue the unexpected God is the God of the mess (laughs) all right let's look at our next point God's fidelity to his word Uh, Back to verse one again. It says, um, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, right there, you got these giant pillars, right? I mean, look at verse 17. Uh, All the generations from Abraham to David Uh, and then ends up to Christ. So two times in this, you have Abraham, David, Christ. You've got these three stalwart pillars in there of redemptive history, three biggies. And a Jewish reader would look at that and they go, Abraham, come on. And they would go, David, King David, are you kidding? I mean, you could have thrown Moses in there for a little black pepper to spice it up. But okay, Abraham, (laughs) David, and the point is, you don't get a more Jewish savior than a guy who is traced back to Abraham. You don't get a more Jewish savior, a more eligible king than somebody who's traced back to David and his his, uh, monarchy. Uh, We're supposed to see, ladies and gentlemen, in this genealogy that God works in a way that pushes through a resistant history. He has fidelity to his own word. He's made a promise to save. And even in the face of human resistance, he pushes through and pushes through. God made a promise and he kept that promise. And um, let me just flip real quick, uh, just for time's sake, because I see the clock ticking. But, um, you know, I'm in Genesis 12 right now and the Lord says to Abram, this pagan, uh, he says, "Go, leave your country, leave your kindred, leave your father's house and go to a land that I will show you. And uh, he does, by the way obediently he does and God says I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed wow that big expansive message even from the very first utterance of God through you buddy all the peoples of the earth will be blessed so God makes this promise and Abram believes him. Um, and it goes on. It's confirmed again. God says in uh, chapter 15 of, uh, of Genesis, Abram goes, Oh, oh Lord, um, uh, my wife and I are childless, and we're super-duper old. So we never had any children. We never were able to have any children, and we're super-duper old. So even if we could have children, it's too, it's too late. Uh, so uh, how, how is that going to work? Uh, that, there's, this nation's going to come from uh, my body. How is that going to work? And um, God says... The word of the Lord came to him. He says, uh, this uh, you know, Eliezer, your, uh, this servant guy is not gonna be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. I hear what you're saying. I know it's impossible. Nothing's impossible with God. You to have a son. Your own son is gonna be your heir. And he takes him outside and he says, look up at the sky. Try to number the stars. So shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness, justification by faith. But the point is, God makes a promise. He confirms that promise again. He does it again in, um, in Genesis 22. Um, he says, um, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. By the way, the Lord will swear an oath. You can too. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, the sand of the sea on the seashore. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemy. Uh, And in your offspring, here it is again, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So once again, God making a promise, God making a promise, confirming a promise. It's this expansive gospel promise. And uh, and it moves through history. And listen, I'll will read you one more. And this is from uh, this is from Second uh, Samuel. Ooh, maybe it's here. Oh, I think I got the wrong reference in here. Oh, it's uh, it's in seven. I think. Hang on a second. Yeah, check this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, David, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He'll build a house for my name. And we go, oh, that must be Solomon. It must be Solomon. But then it goes on. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Wait a minute. That doesn't sound like an earthly guy anymore. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, but with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Now we read that and we go, okay, sounds like a human. Is it Solomon? Uh, you've got uh, my discipline. And by the way, um, The writer of Hebrews just used that and applied it to Jesus last week. Just used that same text. It goes on to say this. Now it becomes this this double meaning thing. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So God's confirming this mysterious, oh, it's this double meaning thing, but it's pointing towards something, a a kingdom that's forever. I mean, God making promises and confirming those promises. And the application for your life is this. A thoughtful reader of the Old Testament. I mean, if you're a thoughtful reader of the Old Testament, you will read it and there will be mystery. But you will read it and you will see this kind of otherworldly thing where you read the Psalms. And uh, it addresses an immediate situation. But there's a greater application. You, you sense that it's not just here. It's, it's speaking of this foreverness. And how about this? Um, this is from uh, Ezekiel. And it's also repeated in Jeremiah 32. I will be their God. And they will be my people. That is the great covenantal statement of the Old Testament and the Bible. And the Bible. I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is the faithful God seeing to his promise um, to, to make a redeemed people for himself. All right, last point, home stretch. God's power to preserve. Four times in uh, our passage here in, uh, in Matthew, uh, four times it mentions the deportation uh, to Babylon. All right, so it's talking about when Israel, you know, Israel breaks into two hunks and uh, the northern hunk is captured and then finally the southern hunk, Judah, is captured uh, and it's, it's kind of summarized by saying the Babylonians got them. Um, and yet, ladies and gentlemen, even though they're captured, even though they're removed from the land, they're, they're torn away, families torn apart, they're, they're, they're removed from their land. Even in the deportation to Babylon, they still didn't lose their Jewish identity. In fact, they were allowed to remain and they were allowed to come home and work on the wall and all that kind of stuff but a remnant always remained and uh, I think what we're supposed to see in that is that a remnant remained not only because God was faithful to his word but God was able to preserve a remnant for himself. He was faithful to himself, faithful to his promise but he was able to keep that promise despite any opposition including his own resistant people. I mean, it's just amazing. Um, I'll close with this. I've had a lot of weird jobs in my life, and most of you know that one of those weird jobs was that I was a ballroom dance teacher. Who did not know that I was a ballroom dance teacher like on Dancing with the Stars? You didn't know that? Okay. Um, ask my wife. I have these strange little areas of expertise, and one of my areas of expertise is uh, we, we, we really have not been giant Dancing with the Stars uh, Dancing with the Stars fans, but we have been watching the last couple seasons. And ask my wife, um, I can tell you w- within f- five seconds I know what dance are doing. You're like, well, they're jumping around. What is that, a Paso doble? Oh, is that a quick step? But a-. I know every single one of them. Um, I know if they're good or bad, and I can almost always pick what the judges are going to say. Now, usually the judges are a little bit more liberal, you know, seven uh, and all that. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> you were out there, you were a tiger. Um, but, uh, but, uh, so I think sometimes they're a little bit too lenient, um, uh, especially at the end when they're all supposed to be so good, but can I, do and I not call it, I call it and I call it and I call it anyway, all to say all that theater. It's hard to imagine. I know that I did that for four years, but I did, um, and it was just, just like Dancing with the Stars, where you're picking the girls up on the air and all these things. I've done a lot of those lifts. I could never do them for a million dollars now. But when I was young and skinny and all that stuff, that's, I, I was able to do that. And, um, you know, I watched, like, Paula Deen was on there. And, you know, you just know that you got, you know, the, the one cool guy's got Bindi, the, the crocodile hunter daughter, and she's, hey, Bindi, boink. You know, she's all limber and everything. You get, Paula Deen, <laughs> you know. Uh, and... I watched these dancers push these ladies around out there, and it reminds me I had several students, I taught a lot of couples, and then I taught these older ladies. I had this one woman named Ann, and she was so sweet. I liked her so much. She was probably 75, and she was a very heavy set lady. And these heavy set gals are usually pretty light on their feet because they're on the balls of their feet. And so even though they're like way out to here, you're, 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 they're very light. I mean, they're floating around. Um, and so she was this great student. She did really well until she got in front of a room full of people. And then she was just petrified. And she would kind of glaze over and get this expression on her face. She was the dearest woman. I just loved her. She would, she'd get this expression on her face. And she was so hard to move around. This little skinny little you know me from Milwaukee. And uh, I was literally going... Oh, I'm just grunting to push her around the floor, oh. <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, that's not a very pretty picture, but um, that, that, that's, that's God in the business of saving humanity. He says, I'll tell you what, pagan from Ur, the land of the Chaldees, I'm gonna take you, even though it's impossible, and you and your wife are gonna have a kid, I know it's impossible, I'm gonna make it possible, and through you is gonna come this nation. And God takes the impossible and he makes it possible. And then he's got this people and they're rebellious and they're rebellious and they're rebellious. They demand a king like the other nations and they get a king. And then they're kings. Wicked king, wicked king, good king, flawed. Wicked king, wicked king, wicked king, king, good king, flawed. Wicked king, pivotal redemptive figure. Oh, murder and adulterer too. Good king, bad king, resistance, uh, idol worship in the land and then Jesus shows up on the scene and they murder the savior <laughs> but guess what the good news is this God pushes it through you know he makes the promise he saves the unexpected he is good to his word and he's got the power to see through it and push through this big fat dancer <laughs> who is resisting unto bringing a savior to clean up the, the great mess that is us Let's thank him for that. Lord, uh, we are grateful, we are joyful because um, even in in some things we don't understand in this passage um, and and in your word, uh, we can still go, wow, uh, yeah, the world is is a mess. Uh, I am personally a mess. We are damaged and traumatized in some respect all the time and yet you did not give up on us. You did not give up on your own word, and you made the history happen that had to happen, and uh, you lined everything up perfectly so that the one with the perfect pedigree would be the perfect substitution for sin. We thank you for that, and we pray it in his name. Amen.